0: Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. When He, meaning Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?" Now as we pick up where we left off last week it will help us to do a quick recap. That will kind of get us back up to speed with where we are. John has seen Jesus open the the first four of the seven seals of the scroll. And when they were opened, we saw the Antichrist come out to conquer without warfare. Then we saw peace taken from the earth. We saw that, th- that this brought wars and killings. And then we saw a resulting famine, in which a day's pay was used just to eat. Then we saw that a quarter of the earth's population was killed by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now before we move on to the fifth seal, I want to remind you that these are all a progression of events and they're also at the same time connected. I want to make sure you understand. They're going to happen in a progression, yet they're all kind of happening at the same time once they start to begin. Okay? So when we try to say, well, what's happened this and then this, they kind of all connect even though there's a progression. You see the Antichrist, uh, he'll be coming out and he'll get come into power at the beginning of the time of world chaos, possibly due to the rapture of the church. There's going to be a, a time of world chaos that's going to be begging for this one world leader to kind of step in and calm things down. There's gonna be resulting wars and fighting because of all this. Uh, because of the fighting, there's gonna be famines. And during this time, a quarter of the earth's population will be killed. This is in the first half of the tribulation period. Do you remember how Jesus, when he was asked in Matthew 24, and we touched on this last time we were together, he, he said, well, what, they were asked him, what will what be the signs you're coming in the end of the age? And what did he say? There's gonna be people that pretend to be the anti- be the Christ. There's gonna be wars, famines, All these things, that's just the beginning of the birth pains. The end is not yet. So these things that we read about here in the first four seals match right up with what Jesus talked about in the beginning of the birth pains. You ladies that have had babies, you know that when the birth pains begin, it doesn't mean that you're about to have the baby. I remember when Nicole, our first one, was born, we finally had to have her induced. It was our first child, and we were all excited because Becky would go into Braxton Hicks, and then the baby never came, and then the due date came, and the baby wasn't here yet. And I remember trying to, we, we, we took her to Chili's. We figured if she'd eat some Chili's, you know, some spicy food. Or we had a friend of ours who had a jacuzzi tub, and the lady was wanting Becky to sit in her jacuzzi tub. I wanted her to walk the mall. I even threatened horseback riding. But the baby wouldn't come until, but you, you know that there's a progression. But what happens, those you ladies that have had babies, just because you start to have contraction doesn't mean the baby's due right now. But what happens to the contractions, what happens? They become more and more progressively intense, right up until the time. And so that's what we're gonna be watching happen as we continue to see these seals opened. But Jesus said, when you see people pretending to be the Christ and the solution to the world's problems, when you see these famines and these wars, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. It's gonna come. now." When Jesus opens the fifth seal, John sees the souls of the believers that were killed during this time of the tribulation, those who were killed during the tribulation period for their faith. Now, as I said last week, as we wrapped up, this is not the church. These people that were killed for their faith in Jesus are not the church. Because you remember we ended up with Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where Jesus promised the church what? I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the earth. You remember that? He said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the earth. These believers are definitely not being kept from it, but are seriously going through it. Put a bookmark here and jump over to chapter 7 and look at verses 13 through 17. Chapter 7, verse 13 through 17, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. You're going to see this, by the way, as one of the things that happens down the road. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see here that these are the ones that are saved during the tribulation period. They're going to have hunger. They're going to have thirst. They're going to have scorching of the sun. Are they being kept from the hour trial that's coming on the earth? Because there are some people say, well, that just means that just like Noah, they'll go through it, but it won't really affect them. He'll keep them. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. During the tribulation, those who believe in the Lord and don't receive the mark of the beast, who have faith in God through Jesus Christ, they're going to be killed. They're going to be suffering. They're not sealed by the Spirit like the 144,000 are and protected from these things that are going to happen. Just like it was in the Old Testament prior to the New Testament church age, the believers in the Old Testament, did the Spirit of God come and dwell them? No, he would come upon them and empower them to live what they needed. And then in this tribulation period, it's going to go back to like it was during that time period. Believers aren't going to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Their Spirit of God is going to come upon them, but they're not going to be protected from what's to come. So if Jesus told the churches, I'm going to spare you or keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the earth, who was he talking to? Us during the church age, church saints. And we're going to be raptured prior to this. So these souls under the altar are not the church. They're tribulation saints. Now, let me kind of clarify this for you. The word saint has confused people when they look at the book of Revelation. Because you're going to see later on in our study, not tonight, that the beast is going to make war against the saints. And he's going to go after them to kill them. And for years, people say, that shows that the church going through the tribulation period. No, 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 no. There were Old Testament saints, right? Were they the church? No. There's the church sage saints, and there's tribulation saints. Just like there was Old Testament saints, there's going to be tribulation saints. And also, wait, and we'll get to this study coming up pretty soon, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was told that 77s are decreed for the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Let me say that to you again. 77s are decreed for Israel and Jerusalem. As I'm going to show you in our study, probably next week, not sure if it's not next week, it'll definitely be the week after that. But it's most likely next week. I'm going to show you that the 77s prophecy in Daniel chapter nine verses 20 through 27. When you look at it and study it intensely, you're going to find that literally to the day that the prophecy was laid out, Jesus rode into Jerusalem just short of one seven-year period left of the tribulation or of the prophecy, and Israel was put on hold. And there's still one seven-year period left in that prophecy. And I'm going to show you if the first part of it was so literally fulfilled to the day, that last seven-year period has to be literally fulfilled as well. So we're going to do that study next week. But just understand that these souls under the altar in the fifth seal are not church believers, but this is those who come to faith during the tribulation period. And there's further evidence in this context that shows it's not the church. Has anybody seen what it is? Anybody any an idea from the context that shows us how it's not the church? Look at, well, John's definitely in heaven when he sees this. He knows, we've seen the 24 elders, but look at the context as well. What are they saying? Those who have been killed for their faith, what is their attitude? How long until you what? Till you avenge our blood. How long till you get them back? God, when are you going to judge these people for what they've done? Does that sound like what we're taught in the Bible? Go with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll start with Jesus, and then we'll go to Acts 7 and look at Stephen. In Luke chapter 23, look at verses 32 through 37. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, meaning Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Hey, let me ask you a question. Were they saying, No, Jesus, we're sorry, forgive us? Did they think they even needed forgiveness? But what was Jesus' attitude? Well, you guys are going to get it. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Go with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, look at verses 54 through 60. Stephen has just finished preaching about Jesus, and the Jews get very, very upset. He says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 54, Now when they heard these things they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, how long till you avenge my blood? No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, Father, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Do you see it? The attitude of the church to be the same attitude that Jesus had while he was on here in the earth the first time. He didn't come to judge, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. He didn't come to condemn, but he came to be the light and to offer salvation. And during the church age, we're not to condemn or to judge. We're to be saying, Lord, give him another chance. Lord, give him another chance. Lord, give him another chance. But during this time period, the believers that are killed are not saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The believers are saying judgment. Why? Because this is a different time period than the church age, and the church is gone, and this is the tribulation period, and it's a time of judgment. Do you see it? By the way, these souls under the altar, they're in heaven. I think they kind of sense the mood of what's going on in heaven right now. And they're not crying out, Lord, forgive them. They're saying, when are you going to avenge? And they just said, just wait a little bit longer, till the rest of your brothers are going to be killed in the same way and then we'll take care of it. It's a time of judgment. So folks, I want to take a second and talk about that. Before I move on, I want to take this time to clarify us the appropriate attitude that we should have toward unbelievers since we are in this time period of the church age. Too often the church has tried to play the role of judge when the Bible shows clearly that we are simply, be the light. So I'm going to just walk you through a couple of verses that kind of talk about this, or passages, actually. And I want to let the Spirit of God take us a little bit for a second away from Revelation to what we're supposed to be doing right now. Go with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to look at our famous passage, John chapter 3, verse 16, but we're going to read it all the way to verse 21. John chapter 3, look at verse 16. For God so what? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Look at what it says. God so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to what? To save the world, to be the light to the world. Go with me real quick to John chapter 12. You'll see it even more clearly as Jesus himself is speaking about this. In John chapter 12, verse 44 through 50. And by the way, Jesus is the one that said John 3 passage as well. He was talking to Nicodemus. In John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, look at what he says. And Jesus cried out, John 12, 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. So Jesus says again, look, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came in the world as a light to the world. And I, is he going to judge one day? Oh, there's a time of judging coming, but this is not it. Yet for too long, the church has tried to play the role of judge and condemnation. When Jesus, who is God, walked on this earth, who felt comfortable in Jesus's presence? Sinners. Sinners felt comfortable in his presence. That was God walking in the flesh amongst them, and they felt comfortable. He never agreed with their lifestyle. He would always say, go and sin no more. Or he would, have, after meeting with Zacchaeus, have Zacchaeus say, I'm going to pay everybody back four times as much as I sold. But they felt comfortable. They felt loved. Who didn't feel comfortable in Jesus' presence? The, Pharisees, the religious folks in our churches today. Who feels comfortable in our churches and who doesn't feel comfortable? The religious folk feel comfortable in our churches. The sinners don't feel comfortable in our midst. Why? Because we have not been portraying the true picture of who God is. Because we have thought that it was our job to be the Holy Spirit. You see, in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. Verse 8 says, but when he comes, he will convict the world of their sin and their guilt and their need of... Righteousness. So, folks, we have, without realizing it, most of our preaching, most of our teaching, most of our work in the church over the years has been because we have subconsciously felt God can't get it done without my help. And we have tried to play the role of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And in doing so, Baptists especially have been known as hellfire and brimstone because we've tried to be the ones who convict people of their sin and make them feel guilty for what they've done. And we've condemned and we've judged. And the Bible says all we're to do is just shine the light, share the truth, love them. And if they don't listen, what does the Bible say we're to do? Keep praying for them and don't try to get them changed. Their minds changed. Jesus said, when you go to a place, let your peace go out. If it's not received, move on. But we've been told to go back there and let me tell you one of the reasons. And I don't want to get into this too much because I spent some time preaching at Men in Motion today about this. And some of you were there and I need to get back to Revelation. But let me just say this. Part of the reason is because we've misunderstood the difference between being a witness and an evangelist. We're all to be witnesses. We're all to allow Jesus to shine his light through us. And a witness just says, here's what I know and here's what I've seen, and they testify to it. An evangelist, and not all are called to be evangelists. Did you remember some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists. There are those who have been given the vocation, if you will, of the calling of God to be an evangelist. We've all been called to be a witness. And here's how you're a witness. You believe it. You live it. And you just let people see it. Now, there are going to be opportunities for when you are amongst the world, not of it, but in it. Doesn't the Bible say to give reason for the hope that lies, be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you? In other words, when people ask you, do you know that most of us have been taught in evangelism that we're supposed to go and draw the net and get people to pray the prayer, bring them to a point of decision? You've got to get them. We've got to have an altar call. How many times have you been mad because they didn't give an altar call? But you know what? If you're faithful to the scriptures, every single time that I can show you that someone comes to faith, the Spirit of God brought them to that point and they initiated the salvation process, if you will. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter's preaching and shining the light, the people were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what must we do? Then he said, believe and repent, repent and believe and be baptized. Did you catch it? They started it. We see it as again in uh, Uh, Acts chapter uh, 16, where Paul and and, and Silas are in that prison, and the doors fly open, the jail doors fly open. And the jailer comes and says, brothers, what must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip taken by the Spirit of God to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. All he says to him is, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And then, when given the opportunity, he begins to share. And then the Ethiopian eunuch is the one who says, well, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? It wasn't Philip who said, here's water. What keeps you from being baptized? It was the eunuch who said, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? Folks, I could go on and on and on. We see the same thing with Lydia in Acts chapter 16 when Paul goes into Macedonia and he's sharing the gospel with whoever's willing to listen. And there were some women there at the place of prayer and the Lord opened her heart to believe. And she said, if you consider me a believer, when the church started in my house, folks, go shine the light. But we're not in the tribulation period where we're hoping to condemn all those people. I know every one of us struggles a little bit when we see on the news the terrorists, don't we? Isn't there a part of us that says, when are they going to get it? When's God going to get them? You got to be careful. You just read where I read to you where Stephen said, Lord, don't hold this against them. They laid their cloaks at the feet of a terrorist named Saul. He was a terrorist, folks. What was Saul doing? He was going house to house, having put into prison or put to death those who didn't have the same faith he did. And if God saved Saul, we know as Paul, and we're grateful, aren't we, that Paul's Paul and God saved him? We should have an attitude to this day that says, Lord, if we're still here, our attitude should not be, when are you going to judge those heathens? Our attitude should be, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Give them an opportunity. Lord, if the reason that you said you seem slow in your keeping your promise is not that you're slow, as some people think. It's because you're not willing anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We are still in the church age, folks, and the rapture hasn't happened. So make sure that your attitude lines up with Jesus's and with those of us who are supposed to be in the church with an attitude that says, give them another chance, Lord. Lord, give them another chance. Don't you have loved ones that you're still praying that? Don't you have children or... Brothers or sisters or parents, have that same attitude to those who are rascals out there. Don't fall into the attitude of, God, when are you going to judge those people? And don't feel like it's your job to go get them all saved. Last night, my wife and I had the privilege of hanging out with uh, Mike and Kathy Terry and a couple from Australia that me and Mike met 12 years ago when we were on a basketball mission trip over there, Bruce and Judy Hallam. And we had a blast last night at Jason's Deli for two and a half hours, and all we did was witness. Oh, by the way, we didn't talk to anybody about Jesus except each other. And we were a loud witness in Jason's Deli, (laughs) but we couldn't help it. It was so cool to catch up and just talk about all the things that God's done in our lives since we've seen them and what God's been doing in their life. And people were coming up to us and commenting on what was going on at that table. Do you see it? Go be a witness, you don't have to be an evangelist, and understand that God's going to get his stuff done and let him use you. The fact that these souls under the altar are crying out, how long till you avenge our blood? That doesn't mean that's going to be our attitude. That's going to be in the time of judgment. Let me show you one last passage and we'll get back to Revelation. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verses 22 through 24. Jesus, again speaking, he says, "...the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life." Is is Jesus going to judge one day? Yeah, the Bible says that the Father actually is not going to judge anyone. He's handed all judgment over to Jesus. Jesus. And there's a day when He comes and He judges. And this tribulation period is culminating up. The church has been removed. It's now that last seven-year period for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem where He deals with the nations and He purifies Israel. And it is a time of judgment, it's a time of wrath that culminates with Jesus' return to the earth where He sets up His throne. But we're not there yet. So, Christians, be praying, Father, give Him another chance. As you wake up every morning, instead of saying, oh, we're still here. <laughs> how about, Lord, you're sovereign, and we're here, still here because there's some people that still need to know. And if you're giving them another chance, give me that heart as well. Again, I don't think that it's my job to convince them that's your work. But may they see you through me today. As I go to the grocery line and the lady says, how are you? And I'll say and Jesus was doing great. Yesterday I was in the line at the post office in Satellite Beach and the line was long and there was only one person working and the line literally was heading down and around the corner if you've ever been in that that one. What was really cool though was for the most part everybody's attitude was pretty good. What helps is the guy Peter that works there who knows everybody and he's talking to you while you're in line while he's dealing with the person at the counter. He'd say, hey Jim, how's it going? Or hey Mike and he's talking to the different folks. And the lady in front of me as I was in line had two little girls that were like two and four. And she had a package she was coming to pick up that was so heavy she couldn't carry it. And Peter turns to the lady and says, don't worry, Jim here behind you in line will carry it for you. (laughs) And I said, I'd love to. And then Peter said, Jim, says to to the lady with the two little girls, he said, Jim's got three awesome kids. And if you want to know how to raise those kids, you just talk to Jim. And I said to the lady and in front of everybody there, the only reason our kids are the way they are is because of Jesus. And We taught them in the word, and we pointed, gave them to the Lord, and he's done a good work, and we're proud of our kids. And we witnessed. I didn't take an offering or give an altar call. <laughs> I just carried the box for the lady out to her Jeep. But isn't it cool that the postman would say, this guy will carry it for you, and he won't have a problem with it? Folks, just go have fun and live, and let people know that you know him and that he's real and don't feel like you've got to get them saved. That's why people are scared of us Christians, because we think we're supposed to convert them. We're not supposed to convert them. We're supposed to just love them and let them see the truth and let God convert them. Let's get back to Revelation. Jesus now opens the sixth seal. And we begin to see a major shift in the events during the time period known as the seven-year tribulation. You see, when this seal is opened, there's such global and astronomical events that people on the earth finally begin to realize that it's God who's acting in what's going on on the earth, not just mankind. Have you noticed during the first five seals, no one says anything about God? There's Antichrist, there's wars, famines, a quarter of the earth's population being put to death with sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, and nobody says God's up to something. They just think it's all natural, why? Because the world doesn't believe God exists. They think we all got here by accident and over millions and millions of years and they don't even attribute anything to God. But when this seal is opened, let me read it to you. When, the open, when Jesus opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let me ask you a quick question. How in the world is the world at this point now saying, this is the Lamb, this is the wrath of the Lamb. Any idea how they would at this point attribute all this to the Lamb? You've got the 144,000 witnesses, you're going to see in a little bit, you got the two witnesses in Jerusalem, and hopefully there has been a church who was given this message to pass on to those behind us, like Isaiah passed it on to us and so on. And the message that we have been sharing with people, whether they accepted it or believed it now or not, it's gonna sink in one day, folks. Hey, this is what Mark Crabtree told me about. This is what he was talking about. You see what I'm saying? It's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty cool that God's gonna use you whether you realize it or not. Just share the truth. Let the Spirit of God let it take root when it's supposed to take root. But what I want to do is I want to take us to a deep study tonight. And I'm going I'm to tell you now, I'm going to ask you questions, and you're going to get some of them right, you're going to get some of them wrong, it's okay. But we're going to actually do some real deep study about this, because we're going to see, and go back to Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, we're going to see a very, very similar uh, episode in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. But I'm going to show you, as similar as these two events are, they're not the same. The timing and the specifics are different. In Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, look at, what, look at what Jesus says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels, a loud trumpet call and they'll gather his elect from the four winds, one from one end of the heaven to the other. And by the way, that's not the rapture. That's when he gathers all the believers that are left on the earth during the, at the end of the tribulation to come and populate the millennial kingdom. That's the sheep and the goats. We'll get to that later. But boy, what Jesus says is sure looks a lot like the sixth seal, doesn't it? I mean, if you just look at it, you'd almost swear they're the same. And for a while, when I first started studying Revelation, I thought, sure, that Matthew 24, 29 was the same as Revelation chapter 6 in the sixth seal. But they're not the same. So what we're going to do is, if you're taking notes, I want you to kind of write down some things. And let's take a look at the differences first. In Revelation 6, we see an earthquake. And this earthquake is so big, every island and mountain is moved. Did you catch that? That, That means the whole globe is redirected or rearranged at that time. That is a big earthquake. All right. The sun becomes what? It becomes dark and becomes black. The moon becomes what in Revelation 6? Red like blood. Stars fall. The sky rolls up and vanishes. But we got to keep in mind the sun and the moon are still there. Right? Because as you're going to see later on, the sun is going to scorch people. So the sun doesn't disappear. The Bible says it just becomes dark and the moon becomes red. That's very important. Because when you look at Matthew 24, verse 29, the sun is darkened. Possibly gone at this time. The moon doesn't give its light either. By the way, you notice the moon's not red? The moon you can't see anymore. Now, how does the moon get its light? From the sun. We see in Revelation 6 that the moon is still visible. Correct? It turns red. The light of the sun is not removed totally. It just becomes darkened. So that's not the same as Matthew 24, because in Matthew 24, the sun goes dark and possibly gone, so much so that the moon you can't even see. The moon doesn't even give his light anymore. We also see that the stars fall and the powers of the heavens are shaken. But when does Matthew 24 happen, according to verse 29? After the tribulation of those days. At the end of the tribulation, this is the final shaking Sky stuff, stars falling, maybe this, at this point, I think I believe that the, the sun disappears at this part. Because there's prophecy in Zechariah, we'll get to later, that actually talks about how on that day that Jesus comes back, it's going to be a day like no other. There's not going to be cold nor heat. It's, the sun and the moon are gone. There's a light that comes from a place we've never even seen it before. It's going to be a total different kind of a day. I think the sun's going to disappear, the moon's going to disappear, all the the stars fall from the sky. By the way, you'll see that, all the stars fall from the sky when that happens. You say, well, how do you know this, Jim? Well, that's why we need to know the Old Testament to better understand Revelation. So what I'm going to do is give you a quiz. Some of you are falling asleep on me, so it's pop quiz time. And I'm going to take you to three passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to ask you, is it referring to Revelation 6, which happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, or is it Matthew 24, which happens at the end of the Tribulation? Alright, you ready? I've given you some clues. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. And don't worry about being wrong, but do your best. Don't just say it's a 50-50 chance, I'll just Christmas tree it. Joel chapter 2 verses 30 through 32. God's speaking through Joel and He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens And on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Is this Revelation 6 or Matthew 24? Very good. How do you know it's Revelation 6? You're right, it is. The moon turns to blood, and this happens before the great and awesome day of the Lord. All right? This is the one that happens in the sixth seal. By the way, they get harder. That was easy one. Go to, go to Isaiah 13. <clears throat> Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, at the wrath of the Lord of hosts. In the day of his fierce anger. Matthew 24. Good for you. How come? How do you know? What are some clues here that show us it's Matthew 24? There's no light. The moon is dark. The sun didn't give us light when it rises. What else? All of the host of heaven is shaken. This is what happens at the end of the tribulation period. Some people are still struggling with, why is God going to do this twice? Stick with me. I'll show you he's done it more than twice. Go to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. This is the hardest one. Look at verses 1 through 6. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples, let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, all the host of heaven shall rot away, and their skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kittens, the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter for the la- in the land of Edom. How many Revelation 6? All right. How many Matthew 24s? It's not a trick question. We can argue it and we can't. I don't know if there's a final answer. I lean toward it's Matthew 24 for one reason. Even though the wording almost is word for word to Revelation 6 with the sky receding like a scroll, I think in the full context and the fact that it says all of the host of heaven disappears makes me think this is talking about Matthew 24. And I also have a little inside information that you might not have. I gave it to you in verse 6. The judgment's tied to Basra. I don't know if anybody knows this or not, because we're going to get there if Jesus tarries. But when the nation of Israel is chased out of Israel by the Antichrist when he steps into the wing of the temple, and two-thirds of Israel is going to be killed, and one-third is going to be escaped and protected in the wilderness, the Bible tells us very clearly where. It's in Basra. And I think in the context of the fact that all of the stars of the heaven fall at this time and the fact that he's bringing blood judgment and his sword is covered with blood and he's bringing his judgment from Basra, Where the Jews... See, Jesus isn't coming back to the Mount of Olives, folks. Let me just give you a little hint to where we're going in our study down the road. For years, I thought that as Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, and the angel said, the same Jesus who you saw ascend will come back in the same manner. And the fact that there's a passage in Zechariah that says that Jesus is going to step foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two, and the Millennial Kingdom was going to begin. For years, I thought that Jesus came back to the Mount of Olives. Until I continued to really dig into the Scriptures, and I came to realize, and I'll show you this later... There's at least three passages that show us that he comes back to Basra, where the people of Israel are hiding, and he appears to them there. And he defeats his enemies from there in the Battle of Armageddon all the way to Jerusalem. And then he climbs the Mount of Olives, and when he steps on the top of the Mount of Olives, the Millennial Kingdom begins. He doesn't come back to the, he doesn't descend there, he comes back to Basra. You're quoting Isaiah 63, exactly. Who and it actually says, coming from Basra. Who is this coming from Basra, stained in blood? Go ahead. Petra's in, in that same area. And a lot, of, a lot of prophecy people think that they're going to hide in the area we know of as Petra. And most likely. But I can promise you this much. If the prophecy says it's going to be Basra, it's going to be Basra. We say, wait a minute, Jim. If we already know where they're going to hide, how are they going to be protected? The Bible says God has the earth even take care of them. Satan, you're going to see next week, pours actually, it's either next week or the next, because like I say, it depends on where we go next. You're going to see Satan's going to come after them, and the earth is going to protect them from Satan. So, if you thought it was Revelation 6, it's okay, you might be right. I don't think so, but I lean toward Matthew 24 on this one, because of the full context, and some stuff that I'll tell you later. All right? Now, some of you, again, still may have trouble with, oh, well, how does God have this darkening of the sun and the moon turns to blood, but then stars fall from the sky and the sky recedes like a scroll, but then he has them do it again. Well, has God ever made everything go black before? Has there ever been a mighty earthquake where the sun goes dark? When? At the cross. So it shouldn't. Supp- well, let me just take you there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Matthew 27. Look at verse 45, and then we'll look at Luke's account of it in Luke 23. Matthew 27. See, a lot of times people say, "Well, that doesn't make sense. Why is it happening twice?" Well, actually, it's happening three times. Actually, if you doing research on earthquakes and stuff, mm-hmm. they, sh- they can show by the Dead Sea and, and the layers and stuff. And one of the biggest earthquakes ever was like time. Exactly. Well, the Bible even says so. Matthew 27, verse 45. Let me get to Matthew 27 here, verse 45. And now from the sixth hour, by the way, what time is that? Does anybody know? That's noon. In the Jewish timekeeping, day started at 6 a.m. This is at noon until the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. From the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, what that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go to Luke 23. Luke 23, verses 44 and 45 gives us even a little bit more detail about this. Luke 23, 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light, what? Failed. Isn't that wild? It wasn't cloudy darkness. It was just plain and simple. God stopped the sun from doing what it does for three hours. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said this, he breathed his last. By the way, if you do other study on this, you'll find at that time there was also a great earthquake. And during the great earthquake, some graves were opened and righteous people actually came to life and walked around. So, should it surprise us that at the midpoint of the tribulation, God has the sun stop give its light and the moon become red? and stars fall from the sky, and all this stuff happened, in a great earthquake that moves every island. Every By the way, when my wife and I had the privilege of going to Hawaii this summer on our 25th anniversary celebration, we really enjoyed the Hawaiian Islands, but we also kept saying, let's see it before it moves. <laughs> Seriously, we kept telling each other, let's appreciate this while it's still here, because it ain't gonna be here. Of course, we didn't say it loud for people think we were terrorists, you know, <laughs> but uh, it's gonna be moved. And so at the midpoint of the tribulation, God is starting to get the attention of the world and they're starting to realize now, oh wow, God is doing something. Now, in the time that we have left, look at the reaction, go back to Revelation chapter six. Look at the reaction of the people on the earth to this first earthquake and the sun darkening. What did they do? They tried to hide from God. Does that sound familiar? Adam and Eve, they tried to hide from God. They actually called out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from Him. And when I was reading that, the way God's wired my brain, all of a sudden He brought back to my mind Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. Go with me to Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. Jesus is speaking. And he said to them, have you never read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit, talking to the nation of Israel. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I don't know if you know what's going on here. If you don't, let me kind of clarify for you. Jesus is the cornerstone that the prophecy was talking about. The chief cornerstone, and by the way, the cornerstone was the first stone laid when you built the building. It was the one that they used and it was perfectly cut square so that when you set it where it was supposed to be, you could line up the rest of the wall on that stone in both directions and your house would be square. The stone the builders rejected, which is Jesus, became the cornerstone. And Jesus says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but the one on whom this stone falls, it will crush. You see, if you do a study of the word fear, you're going to find that there's different reactions to the fear of God three of them are wrong and one of them is right actually in the garden when they were afraid of god adam and eve what did they do they hid from god by the way is it possible to hide from god psalm 139 makes it really clear there's nowhere i can go that you're not if i go there you're there if i go to Sheol, you're there there's nowhere we can hide from god so hiding when we're afraid is foolish when we're dealing with god correct well, there's, if you keep doing a study, you'll find that when the nation of Israel was being used of God to go into these nations, there was a fear of God because of the nation of Israel. And the nations tried to fight. Have you ever heard of those who studied psychology? You got the fight or flight reaction to fear. Some hide and run. Others will try to fight. The nation of Israel came in, and people were in fear because of God and the nation of Israel. But these nations still tried to fight them. By the way, can you fight God and win? That's a reaction to fear that the Bible says is the wrong reaction. By the way, you'll look at Matthew 25 one day, and you're going to see in the parable of the talents, there was a third servant who said, "Uh, I knew you as a hard man. And so I was afraid, and I did nothing. Isn't that kind of like the deer in the headlights reaction you ever seen a deer when they get scared what do they do (laughs) by the way does that work no ask the deer it doesn't work it's not a good reaction either the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom though Jesus himself in John chapter 12 sorry Luke chapter 12 said don't be afraid of man who after the killing of the body can't do anymore I'll tell you who you should be afraid of Fear the one who has the authority and the power to throw your body and your soul into hell. Who's that? That's God. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've asked that question to churches around the country. And you'd be amazed how many churches say Satan. Folks, Satan doesn't have the authority to throw you into hell. Satan's getting thrown into hell himself. Satan's not ruling and reigning in hell. Satan doesn't want to go. He fears it. That's why the demons, when Jesus walked up on the earth and they said, We know who you are. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? They weren't excited, saying, Is it time to go? No, they were afraid. Jesus says, I'll tell you who you should be afraid of. You need to be afraid of God. Why? Because He is the righteous judge. Oh, but in your fear, folks, don't run and hide, won't do you any good. Don't fight against it, you're not going to win. And don't stand there and do nothing. It won't help you. But you can run to him and fall on him and beg for his mercy. And the one who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Oh, but he'll rebuild you. And doesn't the Bible already say that we're all broken as it is? There's no one righteous, not even one. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. That's all of us. Well, blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. When you realize your need for a right relationship with this holy God, you're to run to him and fall on him. Whoever he falls on will be crushed. And so the reaction of the people at this time is, rocks fall on us! And I say, no! You don't want the rock falling on you. Run to him. So I share this with you so that you'll be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you if somebody asks you and you can tell him, run to him and ask for his mercy. He'll give it, he loves you, he's already paid for your sin, just receive it. Don't run from him, it's foolish. Don't fight him, you can't win. Doing nothing won't do you any good either. Run to him. Oh, let me give you one more. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear fear has to do with punishment. We need, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One leads to understanding. But once we run to Him and we fall on Him and He gives us righteousness, He breaks us of what we are and makes us new. The old is gone, the new has come. The Bible says we are to stand up and realize that we are His children now. And we don't need to fear punishment anymore. The passage goes on and says, this fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears God's punishment has not been made perfect or complete in love. So, folks, if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ, you are to reverence him in that type of fear and to obey him in that type of fear, but not fear that he's going to get you or punish you. (laughs) He's already poured all his wrath on his son and we're his children and we don't need to fear him anymore in that way. And so at this point, at the midpoint of the tribulation, God now is getting the attention of the world and they now are starting to realize, oh, dip, God's doing this. Unfortunately, their reaction's not real good. Their reaction's not real good. Prayerfully, I'm praying about where we're going to go next. Next week, if you want to read up ahead of time, we're either going to be in Daniel chapter 9 or Revelation chapter 12. We already have looked at Matthew chap- or sorry, Revelation chapter 7, because remember that already came prior to all this, because the... Angels weren't allowed to harm anything on the earth until after the 144,000. And we've already read about all the harming that's happened now during the first six seals of the tribulation. But before we get to the seventh seal, I think we need to spend some time being introduced to the beast. Because he's going to make war against the saints. We need to find out who he is. So we're either going to come back next week and start with verse chapter, chapter 12 or we're gonna come back and look at Daniel chapter nine because I really feel like it, either this week or next, and, and, and I'll tell you when we get here because that's when God will have let me know what we're supposed to do. But when we meet next time, we're probably gonna, I'm leaning toward a breakdown of Daniel 9's prophecy, a full study of that verses 20 through 27 because I think that will help us really understand what's gonna happen next as we look at the literal fulfillment of the 77s. Yes, ma'am, I saw you raising your hand. Is next week Thanksgiving week? No, we got one more week. Yeah, we have one more week. Then we'll have a week off. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying now. So what we will study next week. Then there'll be a week off. And then, so I'm leaning toward Daniel 9. So if you want to read up on Daniel 9, 20 through 27, that'll get you ready. But it wouldn't hurt you to read Revelation chapter 12 just in case I come and say, surprise. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.